Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Highway Hi-Fi podcast where we go track by track through the underbelly of music history using research and trivia to locate the roots of our obsession with vinyl records. I'm Joe. And I'm Ryan. And congratulations, you've reached the internet's finest podcast for music that wobulates. We're going to start this episode off with a little bit of trivia. Okay, I'm going to go first, and my trivia is going to be about early electronic music instruments. So our show today is obviously, if you if you read the title, is about female pioneers of electronic music. So I've been kind of doing some research on other things that have happened kind of before all of that, and so a lot of this is going to be instruments that were invented in the 20s and 30s for the most part. Oh but I'm going to name an instrument, and I'd like you first to tell me if it is real or not. <laughs> okay. And then for the for the more interesting ones that are real, I'll, after that I'll, I'll give you some background because some of it's really fun. Okay, that sounds great. All right. The first instrument that I am going to tell you about is called the Rippler. <laughs> the Rippler. The Rippler. I'm going to say that is true. That is a fake one. I oh, made that up. Oh, man. Uh, not, not really a very good one. That's <laughs> what Jerry Garcia is when he gets really loaded. The... <laughs> <laughs> good. All right. Good way to start the show with that. Okay. The next one is going to be the electronic sack butt. I think that's true. That is a real one. The next one is going to wait, wait, be... Hold on. I thought you... Aren't yeah. you going to tell me what the electronic sack butt is? I'm going to tell you... The ones that have a really good background. Okay. So that's just a regular... It's like a sack butt that you plug in. The sack butt is... It was named after a, a guy whose last name was actually Sack Butt. <laughs> it's a fact. So that's about as interesting as that one gets. Fair enough. All right. What about the marimba light? Uh, let's say fake. That one's a real one. Oh, uh, this one has a decent story. So most of these instruments are based either on the theremin. A lot of these inventors worked with or knew termin, or the instruments are based on kind of a version of the Hammond organ, even as far back as them as then, or some were homemade kind of things. But for the marimba light, uh-huh. It was made by a Dr. Phillips Thomas in 1935. It was an electromechanical device which created sounds mechanically from light-triggered vibrating tubes. So he was able to play this, play the marimba light, with like a torch in each hand, it says. I don't quite know what that means. To- but the really interesting thing about a, him is... A torch is, is a, the British word for flashlight. 
Oh, of course it is. Thank you. I know that from that Peppa Pig. That makes a lot more sense now. Peppa Pig. And he doesn't get as hot. Of course it is. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Now I feel like myself. Okay. <laughs> Dr. Philip Thomas worked at Westinghouse Research Laboratory for 35 years, and he developed numerous inventions, including primitive robots, vortex chimneys. I'm not sure what that is. <laughs> light bulbs, voice-activated switches. Pretty cool. Ultra-audible microphones. And my favorite one, well, actually, let me go before I do that. After he retired, <laughs> he proposed to study the possibility of recording telepathic human thoughts, though there is no record of him finding anything or, or really moving very far along with that one. But my favorite one is other promotional applications included Rastus, the rubber Negro robot who could be commanded to stand up and talk when illuminated by a torch beam. Oh, my goodness. Isn't that, and I, I sent you a picture of that. It's just uh, the most bizarre thing, I, one of the most bizarre things I've ever seen. That's pretty, pretty terrible. Isn't that weird? Yeah. 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 Pretty terrible. But back to the light marimba. Yeah. Isn't that sort of like what Quintron did with the drum buddy? Isn't it just a light activated instrument? So a lot of these are. Okay. That's what, Um. so yeah, what he was doing or what he has been doing for 20, five years or more is very similar he's making these instruments and it's a lot of a lot of this stuff one of the ones we'll, i'll talk about here again in a minute is they're light based which is really interesting i'd like to hear some of them but i haven't gone as far yet to go in and, and see if if any of these are on youtube for sounds a lot of them there are no versions left at all they were just all sort of destroyed many of these were made in germany and world war ii sort of knocked them out um, they were all they're either all destroyed just throughout the war or when the Nazis really took over, hmm. they were very much opposed to experimental music. So they destroyed them or they were just left behind as people moved, tried to get away and go to England. Interesting. All right. The next one I'm going to go with is the Warbo Forment Org. <laughs> the Warbo Forgent Org. Say that again. Warbo. Formant org. I'll say that's real. It is real. Yeah, it's a pretty cool name. The next one is the Tubon. <laughs> I think that one's real too. It is most. Yeah, most of most of these are. <laughs> uh, they're just such ridiculous names. The next one is the Luminophone. I'll say that one's fake. That one's real. Um, this one was from 1925 by a guy named Harry Grindle Matthews. And it was another one of those light ones. So this was, it was an example of a photoelectronic technique for creating pitched tones using a series of light beams. Each light beam would represent one frequency. Uh, the beams were projected through these rotating metal domes that looked, they look like in those old salons when you would see those perm, like helmets go down on people. They look like that. Very cool, big metal helmet sort of things. And the lights would show up on a photo cell, which generated a pulse. Hmm. Had three octave keyboards and a lamp per key and all that. But the inventor is one of the more interesting people I've ever read about. <laughs> he is mostly known for other more highly publicized inventions, including a light-controlled submarine, a mobile projector for projecting images onto clouds, an early method of recording sound onto film, an underwater sub submarine detector, 
a ground-to-plane radio telephone, a, a self-writing flying machine, <laughs> and his most famous invention was a death ray, which he made in 1923. Uh, the death ray used an unproven method of destroying <laughs> objects and stopping electric engines through an invisible ray gun. After being rejected by both the British and French military, Matthews moved to the U.S., where he ended up trying to sell his luminophone. None of his inventions actually made it to production. <laughs> <laughs> Surprising. Oh, man. The Stacatone. True? It is, and it was invented by Hugo Gernsback in 1923. This was sort of a like a kit so he was really into DIY stuff. So he would he made a kit for people to to just buy it through a magazine ad, and it was a single vacuum tube oscillator controlled by a switch with a sixteen note keyboard, and it would give the staccato kind of attack and delay sound, which is how it came up with the name. Hugo Gernsback is. <laughs> better known as the father of science fiction. And he's the person for whom the sci-fi Hugo Award is named after. Really? That's crazy. Yeah. That's that really cool? cool. He was apparently a major figure in the development and popularization of television, radio, amateur electronics, and sometimes some shady businesses, uh, which in and some real businesses. They included early science fiction publishing, pulp fiction, self-help manuals, DIY electronics, and his own sci-fi writing. Pretty interesting guy. That's really cool, yeah. The next one is the Sub-Harcord. I'll say that's fake. That one's real. Mm. I don't have a whole lot on that one. I just like the name of Sub-Hardcore, but it's Sub-Harcord. <laughs> the next one is the Wobble Organ. That's got to be true. It is. Yep. I think that's probably a precursor to the Wobblator, mm -hmm. which we'll talk about later. The next one is the Blixelpox. That's got to be true. Oh, that's fake. That's all me. The Blixelpox? Blixelpox. Like smallpox and Blixelbargeld, <laughs> kind of combined. The next one is the Harpsiminium. That sounds like a real thing. That one is fake. That's Ow, got me again. How about the singing keyboard? It's got to be real. It is real. Yep, it's sort of a precursor to samplers or modern samplers. Hmm. It played electro-optical recordings of audio waves stored on strips of 35 millimeter films. Are any of these instruments have like recording where you can hear them? Some of them do. I'll post a link to the site where I found all of this stuff, and some of them have YouTube clips. Like I said, a lot of them never made it completely to production, right? Um, but the blueprints are there for for most of them. And the very last one is going to be the Lacroix Sonore. It's my favorite flavor of water. I'm going to say that's fake. It's real. Oh um, man, and this is the last one that has kind of an interesting item about it though there are hundreds that have have interesting ones but this is by a guy named nikolai obukov who signed his name nikolai illumine which is nicholas the visionary nice he was really religious into like mystical christian stuff so he was influenced by the salon de la rose and croix cult he believed that transcendence could be achieved through harmony like 
literal harmony of music. Two of the other instruments this guy invented were called the crystal and the ether. And these instruments were, allegedly, they produced inaudible infra and ultrasonic humming sounds that ranged five octaves below or above human hearing, and they were intended to have a mystical effect on the listener. His most notorious work is called The Book of Life. I'm not going to try to pronounce the real name of it. It was intended to be for performed every year on the night of the first and on the day of the second resurrection of Christ, parts of the score, one version of which is nearly 2,000 pages, oh are written in his blood. Oh, um, some, of the vocal, some of the vocal sections are just, just say scream or wail. That's what they were supposed to do. So, <laughs> It's said that he was probably the first composer to require a singer to make non-musical vocal sounds. And I didn't write this down, but there are some reviews of how critics reacted, and people were just laughing. Like, when they put on a production, people didn't know what was going on. Like, one of the vocals would, vocalists would come out, and they would just whistle. And so people would be in the crowd trying to shush whoever was whistling in the crowd. And it wasn't, they didn't know that this was part of the show and people were laughing throughout. It was probably very embarrassing. And he was probably a little weak from losing all that blood. He couldn't really do much about it. Oh my gosh. That's what I had. Sorry, I just looked into some stuff. I thought it was kind of fun to, to read about. That last guy was crazy. Yeah. Yep. Charles Manson, if he was a composer. All right, well, I'm going to do the audio trivia and I've got six tracks for you and... These are all female artists who are not known for doing electronic music, but I went ahead and put them through a, a lawnmower man robo filter and um, made it into sort of robot version of, of their songs. So it's very difficult to tell what's going on. So I'm going to give you a clue for each song to kind of help you at least point you in the right direction. Okay, thank you. So here we go. Track one. It's a country song from 1974. This robot is afraid of her man machine running away with the fembot with flaming amber decals. Track 2. It's an R.B. and Soul from 1962. Fearing preemptive termination... This robot's moral malfunctioning has led to an extreme fear of retribution from the great programmer in the sky. Track 3. Let's call it Protopunk 1975. Her name is Seventh Letter. Eleventh letter, fifteenth letter, eighteenth letter, ninth, 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 ninth letter, first letter, seven, eleven, fifteen, eighteen, nine, one. Track four. Baroque Pop, 1967. In Germany, the Fembot Fatale vocal oscillations are stylish in spring, summer, autumn, and winter. Track 5. 
Track 5, Neo Soul 2006. It will take precisely 0.2739 of a solar year, or 3.3 repeating months, of full rotations of the sun to fully experience a Roboman's heart. Last track, track six, Indy 1993. You might anticipate that this robot has been recycled, but she's still attached to your chassis, licking your lower limb extremity. All right, Joe, I know those are really tough. Um, You think you might have got any of them? As long as I don't use the actual audio, I think I did okay. (laughs) But the audio was tough. I I had a hard time with that. I'm hoping that hearing it again the second time will will help a little bit. I hope so, too. We'll play them again at the end of the show, and we'll uh, give you the answers then. But now I think it's time for our turntable talk. Everybody's talking at me I don't hear a word they're saying Only the echoes of my mind As an unusually genteel and modest musician, Felix Mendelssohn and his Romantic-era solo piano compositions were a favorite of Queen Victoria. She had even described him as the greatest musical genius since Mozart. In 1842, the Queen beckoned Mendelssohn to perform for the royal court at Buckingham Palace. The Jewish composer and pianist had wowed Queen Victoria and Prince Albert by playing the Austrian national anthem with his right hand and rule Britannia as the bass on the opposite. As a sign of respect, the Queen decided to grace the composer with her vocal rendition of her favorite song of his, a gorgeous lyrical piano piece called Italienne. As the queen stiffened and righted herself about to belt out, Felix sheepishly admitted that he didn't actually write that song. His sister Fanny was the author. Fanny Mendelssohn had long been publishing her compositions under the name of her younger brother. Despite writing over 460 pieces, including trios, quartets, cantatas, orchestral overtures, and hundreds of piano leaders, she only published a single collection of her work under her name right before her death. Despite the musical family, Fanny's talent and ambition had been tolerated more than encouraged by her family. Her father plainly told her, Music will perhaps become Felix's profession, while for you it can and must be only an ornament. Her brother, who privately understood her talent and benefited greatly from her advice and her work, was still dismissive of her publicly noting, She has neither inclination nor vocation for authorship. She is too much all that a woman ought to be for this. She regulates her house, and neither thinks of the public nor of the musical world. 
nor even of music at all, until her first duties are fulfilled. Those are my Mendelssohn impersonations. Spot on. If you've ever heard a recording of them speaking, it's perfect. <laughs> Felix is noted primarily for his short, whimsical piano pieces called Liter ohne Wort, Songs Without Words. Though he is principally given credit for creating this style, there's a lot of evidence that Fanny was the true innovator of the genre. Fanny struggled her entire life with societal and familial expectations imposing on her passion. Her dedication was unfurled in secret. Only now, nearly 175 years after her death, is Fanny Mendelssohn being understood and recognized as the groundbreaking classical music artist that she was. Of course, there is a long history of the unjust treatment of women musicians whose contributions were often overlooked, dismissed, or stolen. Sadly, it's likely to be a long future as well. This is on the top of the extra effort and persistence that it took to establish themselves in a sexist business that is stacked against female creators and performers. In particular, the development of experimental and electronic music has been established on the skills of a number of women artists who made monumental and transformative contributions to forward-thinking, technology-minded music. Unfortunately, many of these artists remain far too obscure for their importance in progressing the genre. This episode is an examination of the unsung women who shaped the sounds during the formative years of electronic music. Before we can get into all the astonishing and surprisingly unrecognized women who represent a seminal role in the birth of electronic music, we want to supply a bit of context and history. We're going to start in Germany in 1920, a pleasant place at the time, I'm sure. It was here that the invention of magnetic tape happened, and that single invention utterly and completely transformed the music industry, though it took a few years. It wasn't introduced to the public until 1935 at the Berlin Radio Exhibition. The Nazis were pretty tight-lipped about the technology and were careful with whom to share it. Other countries had been experimenting with this technology, but the Germans refined it. In France, the best tape they had sounded worse than 78s. In Germany, the audio was as clear as a live program. The British were able to gain the technology. Sorry, Czechoslovakia and by 1940 had started up the new British broadcasting system. The Americans didn't get access until after the war, when they scavenged two German magnetophones in Frankfurt, though 3M was close to having it by then too. The reason magnetic tape was so crucial is that it allowed, for the first time ever, recorded radio broadcasts instead of live broadcast. Records could now be produced from multiple sources with little loss in sound quality. And, most significantly for this episode, it started sound experimentation that hadn't ever been an option earlier. It was this innovation alone that spawned several musical movements and achievements. 
1948, one of the most pivotal events in music history took place in France when a man named Pierre Schaeffer coined the term musique concrète, or concrete music. Utilizing magnetic tape, Schaefer started recording environmental sounds and noises around him. The same types of sounds and noises you hear every day, just about everywhere. With those noises, Schaefer manipulated the tape in ways that extracted the music from the noise. Applying repetition, variation, and transformation, he created something altogether new from the recorded sounds. Musique concrète was liberating for composers and musicians who now had unbounded potential. This removed humans from playing instruments and instruments from being played at all. In 1948, Schaefer, using turntables, levers, cuts, and locked grooves to control pitch and rhythm, produced Etude au Chemin de Fer, which was originally the sound of six steam engines. Schaefer invented an instrument he dubbed the phonogene to help with tape manipulation and then teamed up with musician Pierre Henry to create a studio where they could instruct others on how to practice and apply musique concrète. The study was funded by French National Radio and people came from all over the globe to study this new musical form. For a little while, it was the only place in the world where this was done. Next, in 1951... The Germans added their own studio and implemented their own ideas that were in opposition to the French model, of course. The French were using musique concrète to create emotive songs from found sound. The Germans, whose first studio was funded by the German National Radio, wanted to take all emotion out of the sounds and produced a strictly electronic sound, applying precision to command every tone. One of the primary proponents of the German approach was Karlheinz Stockhausen. His Song for the Children is one of the most important early German uses of concrete music. Stockhausen is also one of the most revolutionary and influential composers of the 20th century, and his contribution to electronic music is extraordinary. Two members of Can and at least one member of Kraftwerk studied under him. His influence is acknowledged by the likes of Miles Davis, Cecil Taylor, Herbie Hancock, Frank Zappa, Pete Townsend, Bjork, and probably hundreds more. Clearly a tangent, but he's absolutely worth reading about if you have the opportunity. Musique concrète rapidly became an experimental musical force in Europe in the 50s. In 1957, the British wanted to get in on the experimental action, and by 1958, they started the BBC Radiophonic Workshop. They recognized that they already had two brilliant creators in their drama department, Desmond Briscoe and Daphne Oram, who had impressed the BBC with their magnificent displays in Musique concrète. Briscoe and Oram 
became the founding members of the Radiophonic Workshop when it began in earnest on April 1, 1958. The workshop was designed to create songs, incidental music, and effects for BBC shows. Apparently, the Radiophonic Workshop was originally going to be called the Electrophonic Workshop until someone realized that the word electrophonic referred to some sort of brain defect. (laughs) True story. (laughs) Daphne Oram started working at the BBC as a music balancer and was given the job because it was wartime and men were off fighting Nazis. By 1958, women were back to being treated as poorly as they had been before the war. Despite proving herself time and time again, Oram was only able to be part of the workshop for about 10 months. The reason for this is not strictly vagina-related. To ensure that the workshop was run well, a board had been set up at the time to oversee things. One of the board members was influenced by a doctor friend who, upon hearing the noises coming from the workshop, determined that no one should be exposed to it for more than about six months. This rule lasted for a while, and Oram was the first to be displaced because of it. Desmond Briscoe, however, who began the workshop with Oram, was able to stay on even though his six months were up at the same time. Oram took her skills and talent and started her own studio called Oramix Studios for Electronic Composition. Daphne Oram was the first person in BBC history to produce a score of entirely electronic music. This was in 1957, and it was for the play Amphitryon 38. After the workshop opened, she then created, along with Briscoe, a score for Equator Mass in the Pit that created the sound that the workshop became known for. That score became the essence for most of the work created in the workshop for at least the next decade. When Oram started her own studio in 1959, she was able to focus on a new style she dubbed Oramics, describing this as the study of sound and its relationship to life. She created drawn sound by using painting and etching on film strips, which were then read by photoelectric cells and transformed into sounds and music. To keep her studio afloat, she also composed music for movies, radio, television, theater, sound installations, and exhibitions. On top of all that, Oram was also a music theorist, prolific author, and lectured about electronic music and concepts that would eventually be known as spatial sound. When she opened the Radiophonic Workshop, she posted a quote from Francis Bacon's New Atlantis on the Door. It was also placed in her studio, and again in her treatise, An Individual Note, in 1972. We have also sound houses where we practice and demonstrate all sounds in their generation. We have harmony, of which you have not, of quarter sounds and lesser slides of sounds. Diverse instruments of music likewise to you unknown, some sweeter than any of you have, 
with bells and rings that are dainty and sweet. We represent small sounds as great and deep. Likewise, great sounds extenuate and sharp. We make diverse tremblings and warblings of sound, in which their original are entire. We represent and imitate all articulate sounds and letters, and the voices and notes of beasts and birds. We have certain helps which, set to the ear, do further the hearing greatly. We also have diverse, strange, and artificial echoes, reflecting the voice many times, and, as it were, tossing it, and some that give back to the voice louder than it came, some shriller and some deeper, yea, some rendering the voice differing in the letters or articulate sound from that they receive. We have all means to convey sound in trunks and pipes, in strange lines and distances. Francis Bacon wrote that in 1626, though it's strangely relevant to electronic music. Before she had any clue what it was, Delia Derbyshire was obsessed with musique concrète. As a young child in Coventry, UK in the 1940s, she listened intently to the unique, mechanically emotive sonic landscape of the Blitz, the air raid sirens, the factory workers' clogs on cobblestone, the waves of the ocean. She heard these abstract sounds as more than noise pollution. This fascination with worldly auditory patterns would carry with her as she excelled in both mathematics and music and eventually would receive a scholarship to Cambridge. She continued to pursue her interest in sound sculpting, which was strengthened when she had an opportunity to experience Edgar Varese's Poème Electronique during the 1958 World's Fair in Brussels. She excelled as a student but was rejected from her dream job at Decca Records because women just weren't employed in the recording studio. Instead, she ended up teaching math and piano to the children of international dignitaries at the United Nations as well as a few other odd jobs. Her passion stuck, and Derbyshire was finally able to break into a career as a trainee studio assistant manager where her main job was to create exact clips for a classical music review show called Record Review. She needed to precisely drop the needle and then splice tape seamlessly. She was also allowed to provide insight on the show as the other critics were impressed by her analysis and ability to find representative moments during the music that accentuated their commentary. Before long, she discovered Orem's radiophonic workshop and expressed a desire to join the soundhouse that perfectly aligned with her interest in electronic and electroacoustic music sound development, and mathematical musical research. The higher-ups were baffled by her desire to join Radiophonic Workshop as it was usually a place where people were assigned, not volunteered to join. Despite her lack of experience, they relented and gave her three months to prove her abilities. It didn't take that long. Within weeks, she was already accomplished with the machines and demonstrating her unnatural ability to match manipulated sounds to the radio and television cues based on the desires of the radio and television producers. Over the next decade, she would work on the sound and music for over 200 programs. In this pre-synth world, this was essentially a Herculean task. 
It is difficult to imagine now, but at the Radiophonic Studios, all audio is created through tape manipulation. No synthesizers, no samplers, no multi-track tape recorders that could ease the process. Normal sounds were recorded onto tape, whether it be musical instruments, beats, or just everyday sounds. These sounds were then adjusted via a series of mechanical processes like looping, sampling, reversing, transposition, filtering, or the addition of treatments like reverb, feedback, vibrato, or oscillation, courtesy of the workshop's famous wobulator. Each note required a painstaking splicing and reconstruction of tape. The laborious operation was made even worse as each line of tape, some of which were hundreds of feet long, had to be played individually with multiple outputs needing to be synced and recorded as a cohesive score. In this day and age of garage band and Pro Tools, it is unbelievable the amount of work and patience demonstrated by the crew at the Radiophonics Workshop. In particular, Derbyshire was masterful at making the ubiquitous noises that we consistently ignore into gorgeous and unforgettable compositions. Bells, clocks, copper kettles, and even an old, broken, upright piano were repurposed as futuristic instrumentation. She was particularly fond of working with wine bottles of various levels of occupancy, mostly empty, and an old industrial metal lampshade that made an otherworldly chime when struck. Here's one of her earliest radiophonic contributions, Know Your Car, which was an opening to a car maintenance program, sort of like car talk, but in old England instead of New England. Beyond this, musical instrument Sonance was utterly deconstructed to be reborn as unique alien tones. The artistic recycling wasn't something that was accidental, however. She was meticulous, using her mathematics background to plot out tunes with precision, often with a slide rule. A perfect fusion of analytical and creative minds. Here's a clip of a song called Patoufet from 1968 where you can hear the robotic computations and everyday acoustics twisted into some sort of proto-techno space-age lounge hell. Crazy to think that these sounds were pieced together from scissors and tape. I barely passed kindergarten because of scissor skills. Spent most of the time making boogers out of rubber cement. The unfortunate reality is that it was a stuffy, time-hopping British alien that would give Derbyshire the most notoriety of her career, of course, with neither writing credit nor money for her efforts. Given a simple score on paper with instructions for some swooping guitars and bass bassoon and words like clouds and wind bubble, Delia got to work with sound-generating equipment and the wobulator. 
The penetrating bass line was actually a single plucked string sped up or slowed down to create the perfect pitch, then repeated over and over. The hissing and sizzling sound was filtered white noise. The melody was a keyboard squeezed through several oscillators. The song was built up note by note on quarter-inch mono tape into possibly the first completely electronic television theme. When composer Ron Grainer heard the extraordinary treatment of his song, he asked, Did I write this? To which Derbyshire responded, Most of it. Grainer made a real effort to share songwriting credit, but the BBC, like a bunch of Dalek dicks, exterminated <laughs> any chance of that, as the policy was that workshop employees were to remain anonymous technicians. As the cheesy and convoluted sci-fi show aired, the unforgettable opening theme was in no small part a huge reason why Doctor Who didn't get swallowed up immediately by time and relative distance in space. So can I tell you a Doctor Who story real quick? You can always tell me a Doctor Who story. <laughs> so when I was in high school, I had to do like community service hours for some reason or another. And so a bunch of us signed up to do a do some hours at the, uh, the local PBS television studio. And so we are the people who are answering the phones and taking donations of people who are calling in. So the night we went, it was like a Doctor Who marathon. And so we're sitting there and it's, yeah, we have like four hours of work or something. And for the first hour, like nobody calls in. Eventually this woman walks into the studio and she's just a, a beautiful woman. I'm, you know, I'm in high school, just gorgeous woman walks in and she walks right past everybody into into the back room. <laughs> when she returns, she's got like this giant hat with these huge feathers coming off of it. She's dressed like one of the companions or something like that. You know, she sits down next to the announcer and he says, this is, she's president of the Denver Doctor Who fan club. And so this lady was apparently like the foremost expert on Doctor Who in Colorado or something like that. And so she started talking and she talked about the episode they were watching. She started talking and talking and talking. And the co-announcer is trying to like get in, like call now to make your pledge and support so we can keep bringing you. But she, she wouldn't let him in. She just kept talking and talking. They couldn't even get back to the show. She was just didactically explaining everything about Dr. Who to the details. <laughs> so nobody called in still, but it was a memorable experience. My oh, my dad called in and he pledged twenty five dollars and he got this cool Doctor Who mug, which I still drink from when I go home. As your dad's a psychiatrist, did he mention how far into the spectrum she was? Oh gosh, it was bad. As great as Doctor Who's walkout track was, it wasn't anywhere near as interesting as what Derbyshire would soon create. A collaboration with playwright Barry Burmage on a strange, artsy radio documentary series called Inventions for Radio. 
An ominous sonic collage floats behind clip snippets of people describing their dreams, in turn creating a nightmarish atmosphere. I couldn't get to sleep last night because of it. So I run along the corridor and I run up the stairs. And uh, some great monstrous shape walks towards me in the corridor. And I run up the stairs. My legs wouldn't go quick enough. And I keep running and running and running. Running and running and running. Uh, Up uh, a big slope. My legs wouldn't go quick enough. I was running and I was being chased. There was somebody after me, chasing me. Up a big slope. That's one of the few that we talk about today that I own, and I love it. I was painting my kitchen, and he would just send it to me, so I just put it on just to hear it. It made me feel like I should just paint my kitchen black. It's like hearing an audio version of the yellow wallpaper while you're painting. Yes, that's a very accurate description. Another fascinating piece is called Blue Veils and Golden Sands which is an accompaniment to a documentary about the Turig people of the Sahara. As her reputation grew, her ingenuity was respected by her peers in the brass at the BBC. She decided to branch out and work on outside projects. In 1966, she would team up with fellow composer Brian Hodgson and synth savant Peter Zinoviev to form Unit Delta Plus, which would focus on electronic music and education and play at various festivals. In the late 60s, Hodgson and Derbyshire would join up with electronic musician David Vorhaus, to form a band called White Noise, which was one of the first true blendings of electronic music and pop. In 1969, they released a record on Island called An Electric Storm, which was earth-shattering in the field, though it was a commercial flop. The melding of treated instruments, tape manipulation, and synth use was, at the time, unheard of in the context of a pop-rock record. Here's a track called Love Without Sound. I remember us during the library music episode talking about that album, and it's been in my want list on Discogs ever since. I I don't know why I haven't gotten it. It's a truly wonderful album. It's one of those weird things where, as we do more of these episodes, weird things converge. Because we talked a lot about Chris Blackwell and Island on the Ska episode, like the first wave of Ska. Yeah. He was the one who really pushed for them to release a full album. I think they'd made like a 45 or something, mostly as an educational thing. And he said, no, this is great. You guys need to do a full album. And he, he really pushed them to, to make that first record, which is, it is, it is a great record. He really did a good job of finding 
good bands when they were early. Right. Yeah. Like U2. <laughs> or PJ Harvey, which is a real one. Did he he found both PJ Harvey and U2? I don't know if he discovered either one, but they started on Island Records, I think. Tom Waits was also on Island for a while. Yeah, they really did a lot of experimental stuff. You know, in the context of popular music, I guess. Yeah. Derbyshire also started hobnobbing with all sorts of scenesters around London. She collaborated with the Royal Shakespeare Theatre, Ted Hughes, and Yoko Ono. She gave a tour of the studio to Pink Floyd and helped get them interested through Zinoviev in the VCS-3 synthesizer, which would be prominent on Dark Side of the Moon. And apparently she was under consideration to give an electronic treatment to Paul McCartney's Yesterday, after she talked with him and George Martin about her work. George Martin contributed one incredible piece to the workshop, along with Maddalena Fagandini, called Time Beat. Martin and Fagandini used the alias Ray Cathode, get it, for this single. Better than their first name of Ray Catheter. <laughs> Rain Catheter? The Radiophonic Workshop's golden age of concrete music ended in 1970 when it took delivery of an EMS Synthy 100 modular system. Derbyshire said she felt like the world was out of tune with itself. She didn't care for the inorganic and plasticky sounds of the synthesizers. In 1973, she left the BBC and by 1975 had essentially stopped producing music. She would compose but never realize her music through recording. Her partner said... She simply refused to compromise her integrity in any way. And ultimately, she couldn't cope. She just burnt herself out. An obsessive need for perfection destroyed her. She worked odd jobs and sadly started hoarding newspapers and drinking too much. In the mid-90s, Pete Kember, a.k.a. Sonic Boom, of British psych psychos Spaceman 3 decided to call her up one day from the studio as he was recording a song about her. They struck up a friendship, and eventually she contributed to his record, Sycrendipity Machine, taken from an unfinished dream. Derbyshire died from renal failure in 2001. 267 reel-to-reel tapes were found in her attic and entrusted and digitalized by the University of Manchester. The quality of the music, as you can imagine, is stunning. Among the treasures was possibly the world's first ever electronic music dance track, as if an EDM caveman was frozen in time at an Ice Age rave. Talk about club music. <laughs> Do 
Delia Derbyshire's impact on electronic music, concrete music, krautrock, and film scores is incalculable. The vast array of artists who cite her as an influence is far too long to try to list. Her name should be mentioned among the greats of modern atmospheric music like Ennio Morricone, John Carpenter, Brian Eno, and Guar. Like Delia Derbyshire, Ilsa Marie Pade was influenced by the sounds of World War II. Pade was 12 years older, born in 1924, and spent a lot of her youth in bed with kidney issues. Not her own. <laughs> it was during those long periods that she created what she called her sonic universe. Being bedridden for long stretches allowed her very little interaction with others her own age. She lay in bed reading fairy tales and listening to radio shows. She also started paying very close attention to the sounds all around her, in her room, in the house, outside. These sounds were transformed into symphonies in her head, long before musique concrète had been thought of at all. She felt that she was given the gift of being receptive to sound. Her mother played music for Pade constantly, classical and opera mostly. By her teens, it was jazz that she became enthralled with, forming a band with her classmates called the Blue Star Band. She began writing and playing her own compositions on the piano, despite her parents' disappointment that she was playing ugh, jazz. Pade moved away from jazz on her own, studying piano and music theory at the Royal Danish Academy of Music. In 1940, the Germans had taken control of Denmark, and she protested. She joined the Unity Party and began distributing underground newspapers. She also began spitting on German soldiers. On one of these occasions, she was chased, but luckily got away. Her music teacher witnessed the escape and told Pade that she needed to stop or she'd get herself and her family killed. But then she also told her that there was a better way to fight. <laughs> Pade's music teacher was actually the leader of an all-female resistance movement. Elsa Pade joined and became an expert in explosives, often needing to destroy telephone boxes to keep secret messages safe from the Nazis. In 1944, their group was betrayed, and Elsa Pade, along with two other resistance members, were captured. She spent a long time facing brutal interrogations involving beatings and solitary confinement. While in solitary, she started scratching orchestras into the walls with her garter belt fastener. It was this music that kept her sane and calm. When she was eventually transferred to a POW camp, she was reunited with her music teacher, and together they wrote music to pass the time. Others in the camp would sing parts and loved the music they wrote. And many of those members of the camp ended up paying for Pade's music studies after the war. In 1952, Pade heard about Pierre Schaeffer's Musique Concrète at his place of study in France. She left almost immediately to meet and learn from Schaeffer, and they became fast friends. The ideas he'd been working with had been in her head since childhood. Ilsa Marie Pade carried a quote from Schaeffer with her for the rest of her life. A perfect universe of sound is at work all around us. She started working on a piece called A Day at Dyer's Havs Bakken for Danish television, and it was finished in 1955. This was not just the first piece of concrete music in Denmark by a woman. It was the first piece in Denmark, period. It was also one of the first pieces in the world. 
She began working with oscillators and compositions based on literature, like The Little Mermaid. Stod i rækker på hver side med en blå brændende ild, som oplyste den hele sal og skinnede ud gennem væggen, så søen derudenfor var ganske oplyst. Midt igennem salen flød en bred, ringende strøm, og på den dansede havmænd og havfruer til deres dejlige sang. Så smukke stemmer har ikke menneskene på jorden. Herman Hesse's The Glass Bead Game. Faust. When she heard of what Stockhausen was doing in Germany, she went ahead and found him and studied under him for a while. She so impressed him that he used her glass bead game as one of the examples in his lectures on early electronic compositions. They became lifelong friends. In 1958, she went to the World Exposition in Brussels, like Derbyshire, where she found even more like-minded avant-garde musicians to learn from. John Cage, Mauricio Kegel, Henry Jacobs, and others. She combined her own theories with ideas from her peers and created some of the most important works in the history of electronic music. Elsa Marie Pade mostly disappeared from music history for a few decades, though was rediscovered by Danish DJs in 2001. She released her last piece of music in 2013, a collaboration with Jacob Kierkegaard called Spenninger. Kierkegaard is also responsible for the essential collection of Pade's work, Electronic Works, from 1955 to 1994. Pade passed away in 2016, having lived as badass a life as any Quentin Tarantino character. Yet another pillar of early electronic music, musique concrète, and experimental music was Ruth White. While the others we've mentioned focused on using these new sounds within the entertainment industry for the most part... White spent most of her career finding ways to use these new sounds in education. Ruth White was a classically trained pianist who started her career with a record label designed for making children's music in the 50s. By the mid to late 60s, she was experimenting with magnetic tape, oscillators, and Moog synthesizers. From 1969 to 1971, she released a trio of albums on Limelight Records showcasing her range and skill. The first of these, Seven Trumps from the Tarot Card and Pinions, concentrated on the occult. It was dark, brooding, it would make for an incredible horror soundtrack. (laughs) ¶¶ 
The second of these albums is the absolute highlight of her career and one of the top five albums we're discussing today, at least as far as I'm concerned. It's called Flowers of Evil and makes the previous nightmarish album sound like Rick Astley. This is a combination of Halloween, blackout-causing thunderstorms, and party clowns. The music itself would have handled all of that, but White adds on top of it a dehumanizing reading of Charles Baudelaire's 1857 volume of poetry, La Fleur de Mal. Here's a clip from the song Spleen. Long hearses without drums or music move in a slow procession through my soul and defeated hope bursts into tears and the fierce tyrant anguish sets his black banner on my bowed head. When the poem was originally published, it was banned, and that ban wasn't lifted until 1949. Of this recording, White says, To me, Baudelaire's poems are of such unique power that they always seem to rise above the level of the personal and sometimes existential nature of their content. In this composition, I have attempted to parallel the transcendental qualities of the poetry through electronic means. In the original French of the poem, the lines rhymed but Ruth didn't use rhyming for her translation, which renders the reading even more off-putting. Her vocals were also run through her concrete music machines to make it even more unnatural. Pitch and speed were constantly changing, making it wholly unpredictable. We'll hear a complete song from this album a little later on so you can fully digest its eeriness. Sort of a butthole surfer song, <laughs> just many, many years early. Yep, she was a huge influence on the butthole surfer song. <laughs> Spleen is like the most butthole surfer song title there is. These albums weren't aimed at children, were they? No, these three were sort of her break. So she was working okay. in education prior to starting that album, and she just released a, this trilogy, and then she went back into education. And we'll we'll mention that here in a second. But yeah, she took a break from... The kid stuff. The third album in her trilogy couldn't help but be a slight letdown, but it's still powerful. It's called Short Circuits, which Steve Gutenberg adapted for his iconic film of the same name. On this album, number five doesn't come alive. White moves away <laughs> instead from nightmares and inst runs her take on classical music through her recording manipulation and keyboards. After these three triumphs, White added filmmaking to her resume by creating stop-motion animation to be used for educational purposes. She then partnered with Paul Beaver to create the Electronic Music Association, which gave concerts to introduce audiences to new electroacoustic works. The rest of her career was spent back in education, where she helped pioneer bringing music and video technology into classrooms to better relate with the current generation of kids. As women have constantly been on the cutting edge of music technology, there is a frustrating history of their relevance being so consistently diminished. The names and accomplishments overlooked or intentionally swept aside, even when these figures were clearly originators in the field. 
Musicologists have stated a case that Ada Lovelace, the mathematician and computer programmer, was the first to even conceptualize the concept of electronic music as she proposed a theory in the 1840s that the mechanical computing analytical engine machine could use representations of musical notes and algorithms to make scientific pieces of music. Or there's the case of Joanna Beyer, who in 1938 wrote Music of the Spheres, the first known score made for electronic instruments crafted by a female composer. Despite composing completely unique percussion ensemble music, experimenting with pitch-based rhythmic processes, and collaborating with hugely important ultra-modernist musicians like Ruth Crawford Seeger, Charles Seeger, Henry Cowell, and John Cage, her innovative works were misunderstood and forgotten about for decades during her life and beyond. Now she is starting to get some of the recognition she deserves as people rediscover her music. Here is a 1974 rendition of her Music of the Spheres by the Electric Weasel Ensemble. We discussed Clara Rockmore at great length in a previous episode about theremins and moogs. While the Lithuanian musician remains famous for being the virtuoso of the first electronic instrument, due in no small part to her innate ability to hear absolute pitch, what is less well expressed is just how critical she was to developing the theremin into a practical and playable instrument. Working closely with Leon, she redesigned the theremin so that sensitivity of the volume control could produce rapid staccato. The pitch antenna was more sensitive, the range was increased from 3 to 5 octaves, and the profile of the instrument was lowered so that audiences would be enamored with the prowess of her touchless performance. Here's Rockmore's extraterrestrial dirge rendition of Ave Maria. Another critical first would be that of B.B. Barron, who, along with her husband Lewis, wrote the first entirely electronic film score, 1956, for Forbidden Planet. The stunning music was, at the time, certainly nothing like audiences had ever experienced. Married in 1947, the Barons received a tape recorder as a wedding gift and loved to record friends at parties. Inspired by the book Cybernetics, or Control and Communication in the Animal and the Machine, by MIT egghead Norbert Wiener, 
<laughs> Seriousness. Unbelievably perfect nerd name. So anyways, I read that book, and Lewis started working with circuits while BB became adept at tape manipulation. They soon started a private studio and mostly did avant-garde work, engineering for the experimental likes of John Cage, Morton Feldman, and Earl Brown. But avant-garde didn't put spam on the table, so the Barons looked to Hollywood with theremins and other early electronic instruments, like the electro sackbutt or whatever, have been sprinkled into sci-fi and horror films for years. Bibi and her husband upped the ante significantly and created individual cybernetic circuits that had characteristic activity patterns, what they called voice. The film and the soundtrack were huge successes and established what science fiction movies would sound like for decades to come. Despite the importance the Musicians' Union forced MGM to title the Baron's score as Electronic Tonalities, not Music. And it was not even considered for an original soundtrack Oscar. A single tear rolls down the glass dome of Robbie the Robot. It is unlikely that anyone has had a more misunderstood and unfairly reviled public persona than Yoko Ono. However, people have a strangely intense emotional distaste for Yoko that... We at Highway Hi-Fi believe comes entirely from an over-importance on the Beatles as a pop quartet and a place of ignorance of the majesty that is Yoko. She is by far our favorite Beatle. Maybe our favorite Rolling Stone, too. Oh, and if anyone is to blame for the Beatles' breakup, and no one really is, it should be the Eastmans. Look into it. But we aren't talking about her involvement with that John Guy, or even her brilliant experimental pop and dance music career in the 70s and 80s, which needs an entire episode to truly be explored. We want to illustrate the innovator she was in electronic music while she was a well-established star of the Fluxus downtown art scene. Ono would regularly integrate electronics and sound art into her happenings experiments. Her artwork was based upon the principle that art is not a material object. As a conceptual artist, the audience was nearly always involved in her exhibitions, like the famous cut piece, where the crowd was invited to cut off a piece of her clothes with a pair of scissors. During these performances, music would often provide an atmospheric tension. These were live performances, not usually recorded and always unique. Yoko was a classically trained piano player who loved both Japanese imperial music, called gagaku. Gotta catch them all and the modern experimental musicians surrounding her like Lamont Young and John Cage. She was also an inspiration to other musicians around the world, offering them more theory than musical training. She was the human embodiment of Eno's oblique strategy cards. Here's some of Yoko's Fluxus work called Toilet Piece. <laughs> In what might be the polar opposite of electronic music, Lori Spiegel started her career by studying Baroque and Renaissance lute at Juilliard. Then, in what must have been like using a time machine, she suddenly developed a strong interest in analog synthesizers, before recognizing the powers of computers and the ability to generate music. 
She started experimenting by programming algorithmic logic to complement and interact with the musician's playing. She has stated, I automate whatever can be automated to be freer to focus on those musical aspects that can't be automated. The challenge is to figure out which is which. Spiegel worked with Buchla, Electronic Music Laboratories, and Bell Labs before finally releasing her most notable interactive compositional software called Music Mouse. She called her program an intelligent instrument as it contained built-in knowledge of musical conventions and stylistic constraints. Her music is both delightful and heady. The album, The Expanding Universe, is a slow unraveling of tones that expand and contract, but it isn't as subtle as standard ambient music. Carl Sagan selected the following work, Spiegel's interpretation of Kepler's Harmony of the Worlds, to be included on the Voyager gold disc that was flung to the far reaches of the solar system. I guess we now know what Alf was spinning at those Melmac Ragers. So one thing I did want to mention is she has this great quote about an album called A Strain of Life that she released in 1990. She said, It happened one afternoon while I was sick, fantasizing that I could tame my own virus by doing so. I decided to map the complete genetic base sequence of a viroid into the musical pitch domain. I didn't have any data for a real DNA virus, but I found a complete information on a viroid, which has only RNA in an old Scientific American from 1981. If you substitute adenine for each A, and uracil for each E, and guanine for each G, and cytosine for each C in this piece, you will have a self-replicating genetic strand which lives in the cells of others in a state so close to the border of life that it is a moot scientific point whether it could be considered alive or not. It is completely another question whether a being so simple that a minute of music can contain its entire informational self can be conscious. And if so, then conscious of what? But since I tend to anthropomorphize a lot, I gave it a bit of old-time country music personality when mapping it for the translation. She's really smart. It's such a brilliant idea, though, that taking a DNA or RNA sequence and, and mapping it to music and hearing what it sounds like is just it's so cool. And she did this while she was sick. When I'm sick, I usually just watch like The Price is Right and eat chicken needle soup. For a while, the French composer Eliane Radique shared a studio at Boucle with Laurie Spiegel. Like Padé, Radique became intrigued with concrete music after hearing a broadcast by Pierre Schaeffer. She became his student and eventually was assistant to Pierre-Henri. She soon developed her own style that was more focused on tape feedback techniques, which require long tape loops with minuscule changes over extended periods. Sounds to me like disintegration tapes. Yeah. The old guard of concrete music didn't appreciate her departure from their central tenets, so she moved on and became interested in synthesizers as they were rolling out in the early 70s, particularly the ARP 2500. 
The music she made was a slow unfolding of droning sound that put her more in line with New York City minimalist composers. Her sound has been described as infinitely discreet, next to which all other music seems to be tugging at one's sleeve for attention. In 1975, she became very involved in Tibetan Buddhism and would eventually record large cycles of work dedicated to its teachings. Her masterpiece from this era was Trilogy de la Mort, which was inspired by the Tibetan Book of the Dead, and takes you on a three-hour tour of six states of consciousness, sort of like the SS Minnow getting shipwrecked en route to attaining nirvana. Here's a taste of the trip for you, little buddy. There's no one who brought electronic music more fervently into the mainstream than Wendy Carlos. After a fruitful relationship with Bob Moog, she took synthesizer out of the academic realm and into popular culture with the first ever platinum-selling classical record, the Moogalicious Switched on Bach, in 1968. She then went on to score some of the most memorable electronic soundtracks, including Clockwork Orange, The Shining and that neon demon itself, Tron. In 1972, she released Sonic Seasonings, which made initial use of minimal sounds in long durations. It is seen as perhaps the first New Age ambient record, as it was recorded six years prior to Eno coining the phrase with his Music for Airports. You got a car that says, Be late to the party in that fancy deck of yours, Brian? Additionally, she was also one of the first artists to utilize and lead a digital orchestra on her 1984 record, Moonscapes. She has long shown precognition with her ideas that orchestral sounds and choral tones involving musique concrète, hybrid timbers, and alternative tunings would be the future of music. On top of her musical accomplishments, she was one of the first public figures to undergo gender reassignment surgery and talk about it earnestly. Carlos was truly the authentic master of synthetic music. In the past decade, she has pretty much gone completely silent and remains reclusive. She works very hard to keep her music off the web, so out of respect we won't clip anything, but definitely recommend looking out for her records while you're browsing the shops. Sorrel Hayes was your normal, exceptionally talented classical pianist until she took a huge left turn and started composing pieces for electronic ensembles that involved the use of tone clusters. Tone clusters are basically three or more contiguous notes sounded at the same time, so imagine three or more adjacent piano keys struck simultaneously, which to most people is jarringly dissonant. Hayes became known as one of the world's foremost piano players of this experimental style, which she combined with unusual electronic instruments to invent sounds that leave listeners befuddled. See if you can hear the tone clusters in this. It'll be those particular clusters that make you feel like your brain is falling apart.
Pauline Oliveros was fascinated with the gray area between involuntary hearing and voluntary listening. She developed and taught a practice called deep listening, which is sonic awareness where the practitioner seeks out even the smallest of tones and vibrations within environmental conditions. Though surprisingly, she is most well known for playing avant-garde accordion, which is also what happens when some dupa doses the polka band sauerkraut. Best boiled fish party ever. (laughs) This is from her record accordion and voice, which is awesome. She looks a lot like Brother Theodore. <laughs> Not meant to be offensive. I think he's an attractive guy. He's beautiful. They're both beautiful. Yeah. That accordion and voice, I would think about getting it. It's so cool. Her focus on the consciousness expanding and healing power of resonance began after trying to deal with the atrocities surrounding the Vietnam War. In particular, a fellow UCSD student's self-immolation act of protest. As an inward retreat, she would start singing and playing long, droning notes on her accordion, spending a year dedicated to a single note, A. She would continue these sonic meditations, and they would eventually be integrated with meetings where various sorts of kinetic awareness activities would help to attune the participants. As a founding member of the San Francisco Tape Music Center in the 1960s, she was a key figure in the experimental and electronic music realm. She designed an electronic signaling processing method called Expanded Instrument System, which she would use to make stunning improvisational pieces. Oliveros was truly visionary, and her musical theories and practices continued to be studied even after her passing. Take a deep listen to this cut from her record, Deep Listening. The success of Susan Chiani led to her being dubbed America's first female synth hero, or the diva of the diode, or the lady who put the ample in sample. She was initially trained as a classical pianist, like many of the women we're speaking about today, but expanded her horizons by taking classes in the psychology of acoustics and computer music. As she was starting to garner attention, she spent some time living on the floor of Philip Glass's basement studio. You know what they say about Philip Glass's basement studio. You shouldn't throw stones. Through her skills with an incredibly finicky Buchla synthesizer, she eventually made a name for herself through her innovative commercials for Coca-Cola, Merrill Lynch, and General Electric. She continued to toe the line between mainstream success and artistic integrity as she would continue to contribute to projects as wide-ranging as the Starland Vocal Band, Mecco's Star Wars Disco, the pinball game Xenon, experimental films, soap operas, the David Letterman Show, and 321 Contact, 
all the while performing and recording electronic ambient music on a record label that she started called Seventh Wave. Here's an ample sample from a concert album from 1975. I guess she was like quintessential sound of a Coke bottle opening that I guess that was her. Oh, wow. Like she, she was the one who did that, which is kind of cool. Like something that everybody has heard and knows. Mariana Mocker took a more organic approach to her electronic music. As a composer and theorist, she investigated physiological phenomenon called a toa acoustic emission where the ears themselves act as noise-generating devices. She used electroacoustic sound technology to produce auditory distortion products within the listener, what Amaker called ear tones or combination tones. She explained, When played at the right sound level, which is quite high and exciting, the tones in this music will cause your ears to act as neurophonic instruments that emit sounds that will seem to be issuing directly from your head. My audiences discover they are producing a tonal dimension of the music which interacts melodically, rhythmically, and spatially with the tones in the room. It's a real head trip. Sounds like scanners. Yeah. (laughs) Take a listen to a bit from sound characters making the third ear. Anaya Lockwood was a bane to the pianos of the world. Coming from the Fluxus tradition, the New Zealander composer and performance artist would incorporate found natural sounds into her works as well as microtonal electroacoustic soundscapes. She's most famous for her piano transplants, which involved the merciless burning, drowning, or planting of pianos as performance and musical pieces. We need to get her to open for Billy Joel. <laughs> Elements of avant-garde, concrete music, non-conventional instruments, indigenous sounds, and visual elements were in a constant process of evolution, but always form a strangely potent and addicting reverberation. Lock up your Steinways, kids. Here's a bit of Tiger Balm. <laughs> Through emerging of the human voice and synthesizer processing, the visceral artist Annette Peacock created an unforgettable style of robot blues. Spending time in the 60s with Timothy Leary, Ram Das, and Michio Kushi, the principal proponent of the Zen macrobiotics diet, Peacock was totally enmeshed 
with the most colorful plumes of counterculture. That's a pe- peacock joke. While touring Europe with Albert Eiler, she invented a style called free-form songs, a spacious and deliberate style of jazz blues for her pianist husband, Paul Blade, to perform. She was given an early prototype Moog from Dr. Bob himself, which she used to run her voice through, making her one of the first artists to fully electronically enhance her vocal performances as early as 1968. Peacock had a fierce and relentless career, strutting with a host of amazing musicians like Karlheinz Stockhausen, Brian Eno, Mick Ronson, Bill Bruford, David Bowie, and Sun O, while being covered or sampled by scores more. Here's the unbelievable futuristic jam, I'm the One, which is probably the Metropolis's machine mensch go-to for Ottoman karaoke nights. This is the droid disco we're looking for. <laughs> There is also one crucial record that we need to mention, and it's called New Music for Electronic and Recorded Media. Producer Charles Amerkanian compiled representative tracks from current cutting-edge female electronic composers, giving them a more widespread exposure and helping to establish a movement. Many of the artists that we've mentioned today are on this 1977 record, including Joanna Beyer, Pauline Oliveras, Ania Lockwood, and Laura Spiegel. It's also the first instance of Laura Anderson and her freshly invented tape bow violin being committed to vinyl. It's sort of like a really good primer or like electronic music 101. Yeah, and it's it's available. It's It's not super cheap. It's about what you would pay for like a nice new record. It's like 20 or 30 bucks, right? $30, yeah. Okay. But... If you're into this stuff, it's a great place to start. It doesn't have all of the the Orem and the Derbyshire, like, early, early stuff, but stuff, like, from the 70s, it's really cool stuff. Certainly, there has been no shortage of women who have masterfully fused the music of computers, circuits, and synths with pop music to great success. Buffy St. Marie, Bridget Fontaine, Donna Summer, Kate Bush, Bjork, Juliana Barwick, there are countless more who integrate electronics into hip-hop, techno, synth-pop, dance music, electroclash, and new styles of music that probably have already passed us by. Just as important, there are still women pushing boundaries on the artsy fringes of electronic music. Letitia Sonami is an artist who composes interactive music using instruments she created like the Ladies' Glove, which is sort of like the Nintendo Power Glove, except... You control members of Tangerine Dream rather than Kid Icarus. Here's a clip of her performance with the Spring Spire, which is a wheel with strings attached to a keyboard based on the application of neural networks to real-time audio synthesis.
Laurel Halo's avant pop is captivating and petrifying at the same time. She's released several records worth of strangely personal, dystopian, galvanic jazz. One other person that we need to mention is Ursula Bogner. Bogner was an unknown housewife-slash-mother-slash-pharmacological scientist who also dabbled in electronic music by making synthesizer-based compositions on reel-to-reel tapes in the studio she built herself. German microhouse DJ Jan Jelinek happened across her music after a chance meeting with her son and then released her music under his Fastiche label. Except, as you might have guessed, this was all an elaborate hoax, made even more confounding by the fact that there was a 126-page book that came with this release containing essays about the music, gender roles, and cultural perspective from other musicians, ethnomusicologists, and an organ researcher. Jelinek's music is undoubtedly great, and perhaps it should be left at that. However, in the view of how many rightfully deserving women in the electronic music field were unfairly overshadowed, the whole situation could seem a bit tone-deaf. We mostly included the story because the ruse was effective enough to fool some websites into including Bogner on a list of influential women electronic artists. Electronic music is such an expansive genre as it brings in many aspects from far-reaching arenas like science, technology, computers, mathematics, installation art, theater performance, and general creative thought. In a sad way, electronic music shares the same unfortunate characteristics as many of those arenas, a lack of acknowledgement of the significance of women in the genre. An online database called Female Pressure, started by Suzanne Kirkmeyer, a.k.a. DJ Electric Indigo, has data showing that even though the number of female electronic music artists has had more representation at festivals and concerts over the past decade, there are still seven times as many male artists on stage than female. One clear theme is that there is heaviness and darkness to much of the music made by the outstanding artists we've discussed today. The transition of natural sounds into unnatural music is a process that causes some discomfort as a necessary challenge to the status quo. One anticipates things ending in a natural order and flow, but instead there is a constantness of sound that makes it seem as if the tones will carry on forever, like the tone of pie, but not the dessert. Because the music breaks traditional music rules, it keeps listeners off balance. There's no predictability and the structure is foreign, but it's there. It just takes more deliberation on our part to recognize it and allow ourselves to put aside the musical constructs we've known for so long. This is music that offers new perspectives, produced by artists with newfound voices. Without generalizing too greatly, 
the starkness of the sound in some part may be due to the force that had to be exerted to not only expand the boundaries of music, but to break through societal walls. The vast world of creativity and ingenuity that was forged is worthy of continued examination and appreciation. So we kind of started this episode out as we were going to just do it about Delia Derbyshire. And then as we started researching, we found all these other great pioneers of electronic music. And I think at some point we decided, you know, there's too many great artists to just do Delia Derbyshire, even though that might have been their original focus. Who was your favorite kind of reading about all these people? I think my favorite life story is the Elsa Marie Pate. Oh, yeah, that's incredible. She's just cooler than anybody I've ever heard of. If she had just played minor league baseball, too, she would have been (laughs) on top what she already did. My favorite album is the Ruth White album. We'll hear a little bit more of that because I bought it right away. Flowers of Evil. It's unbelievable, the life that she lived. Because she worked with... Schaefer, and then Stockhausen, Mm -hmm. and then John Cage. I mean, she was really with lots of giants of the industry, but she's almost entirely forgotten, or she was entirely forgotten. Yep. And her music is amazing. It's incredible how all, all of this music resonates, and it just seems like it's just not well known enough. I think the music that we discovered on this episode has been some of my favorites since we started the podcast. It's a little bit like doing private press or library music where there's just a world out there that you just didn't know existed. Yeah. And I mean, I don't think either of us are giant like EDM or techno or electronic music people, even though that it's a precursor for that. This isn't that music. And I don't think even in those circles, I don't think it's even that well known. I don't know. I think no matter how well known it might be, it deserves even more, no matter what. But I don't think a lot of this has been used for sampling, which you would you would think by now. Some of it, I'm sure, has, and we mentioned a couple, but I think it really needs a much deeper dive into all of this music and musicians, DJs, anybody making ambient music, anybody doing just about, well, really any kind of music should really be kind of feeding off these things. This is amazing stuff that could still be utilized to create futuristic music and music of the future as it moves forward. It won't ever be dated. No, that's true. And these are some of the most articulate and eloquent human beings I've ever read about. Like the liner notes where they are writing their own small essays or they're writing music theory books or just books in general. These are really well-written women who have a, a great command of music theory and the English language, and you're not, you just don't see that from people in any field as consistent as this, I don't think. No, no, they're all eloquent and thoughtful and purposeful in what they do. It just never seemed like maybe until that record from the 70s, it just never, there was never a confluence of the power of these artists. It's so strange that, you know, you had these different countries who are being represented and it just never all came together until the 70s when I do think it came together a little bit but didn't ever you know break into mainstream it would be nice to see a really well curated compilation of some of these women all put together and put out by a numero or 
a record label that has some sway and, and popularity so that more people could hear these things. Cause I think it, I think they're due. Absolutely. All right. You want to do some songs? Yeah. Okay, I'm going to play the first song. It is by Delia Derbyshire, and it's called, I guess, Zweezy Zweezy O-O-O. that correctly by Delia Derbyshire that's from 1966 I got it on a comp from 2019 it's a BBC Radiophonics Workshops comp uh, that was reissued it's on pink vinyl really cool comp we talked a lot about Delia Derbyshire so we're not going to go too much into it this song in particular is from an episode of a show called Out of the Unknown titled The Prophet that was based on one of the Isaac Asimov Robot stories, the iRobot stories. And so in this story, the robots uh, reject their human masters and start worshiping an energy converter and start saying things like praise to the master, his wisdom and his reason forever, forever. It's a really, really cool song, like so much of her stuff is. And there's really nothing that sounds like it. So just one of those songs that there's probably 10 songs we could have played from her. This is just one I really liked, and I thought about putting it into the body of the turntable talk, but wanted to play the whole thing, not just clip it. So there you go. All right, I'm going to start with a track by a woman we didn't spend much time talking about, Laurie Anderson. So this song is called Sharky's Night.
Sun's going down like a big bald head, disappearing behind the boulevard. It's Sharky's night. Yeah. It's Sharky's night tonight. And the manager says, Sharky, he's not at his desk right now. Should I take a message? Sharky says, hey, Kamasabe, long time no see. He says, hey, sport, you connect the dots. You pick up the pieces. He says, you know, I can see two tiny pictures of myself, and there's one in each of your eyes. And they're doing everything I do. Every time I light a cigarette, they light up there. I take a drink, and I look in, and they're drinking too. It's driving me crazy. It's driving me nuts. And Sharky says, Deep in the heart of darkest America, home of the brave. He says, listen to my heartbeat. All right, that was Sharky's Night by Laurie Anderson and William S. Burroughs on lead vocals. That is from her 1984 album, Mr. Heartbreak. And it was on Warner Brothers record, kind of a big one. Laurie Anderson, you may know, she was really huge for a little while there with us because of a song called Oh Superman, which was like a nine minute hit. Laurie Anderson was someone who didn't have really much of a music background. She was an artist, a performance artist, but then she started doing music and she started making her own instruments. We mentioned the tape bow violin, which is something she created and in 1977, what it does is it uses recorded magnetic tape in place of the horsehair on a bow and a magnetic tape in the bridge. She has updated and modified this device over the decades. She can even be seen using a, a newer or later generation of it in her film Home of the Brave. She also created an instrument called the talking stick, which is an instrument that she says she designed in collaboration with a team from Interval Research or something. It's a wireless instrument that can access and replicate any sound. It works on the principle of granular synthesis, which is a technique of breaking sound into tiny segments called grains and then playing them back in different ways. So the computer rearranges the fragments into continuous clusters or strings that are randomized. And they're played back in overlapping sequences. So there are the, all these new textures created from those grains, which are very short, like a few hundredths of a second. They can sound smooth or choppy, just depending on the size of the grain and the rate that it's being played. It's kind of like frames in, a, in film, like a single frame would be like a grain. William Burroughs, who was a really good friend of Laurie Anderson, provides the vocals and the lyrics for this song, that Sharky's Night, 
which is the album's closing track. It's a tale about this really simple guy named Sharky and Sharky's misunderstandings concerning an airplane and the concept of reflections in a mirror. It's a brief song that is very light and whimsical, especially compared with a lot of the stuff we heard tonight and the next song I'm going to play. And that next song is called The Litanies of Satan by Ruth White.
All right, that was Ruth White with the Litanies of Satan, for those of you not cowering. It's from her album, Flowers of Evil, that we talked about. This was the second in that trilogy. This one came out in 1969, originally on Limelight Records. I have it on a Black Mass Rising Records reissue from 2013. Black Mass Rising is a good label to check out for odder, experimental, electronic music. But the Litanies of Satan is... Oh my God, so frightening. I was going back and forth trying to figure out whether I was going to play the full song Spleen, which we did a clip from, or The Litanies of Satan. This one won out only because if you heard the whole Spleen, you oh, it would crack your skull open. It's terrifying. <laughs> burst your spleen. It would burst your spleen. She did a really good job. All of the vocals are mystifyingly weird. We talked about this, how they she sort of made them in almost machine-like, or at least not human. And they just really make the album more frightening than it already would have been with frightening music. So uh, the two things combined just complement each other so well. It's a horror movie and soundtrack all on its own. It's very unsettling. It is, in a really great way. This album was... The one that I bought from this research, I think I may have ended up buying a couple, but this one I bought right away. The whole album I really like. I know I keep talking about how frightening it is. 
And maybe that's not a good thing, but I really love it. Uh, my kids don't, but I love it. <laughs> Time to go to bed. <laughs> dad, dad. All right. The last song we're going to play tonight is by Buffy St. Marie, and it's called God is Alive, Magic is Afoot. This 
I mean my mind to serve till service is but magic Moving through the world and mind itself is magic Coursing through the flesh and flesh itself is magic Dancing on a clock and time itself the magic length of God That was Buffy St. Marie with God is Alive, Magic is Afoot. Buffy St. Marie is is a really cool person. (laughs) She's a singer-songwriter. She was indigenous, but Canadian-American. She mostly did kind of like folk music, but she also did all sorts of other stuff. She was a visual artist, an educator. She was a social activist and pacifist. And she was also a Sesame Street regular. On one episode, they asked her to come on and sing a song, and she said, I, you know, I'd love to, but I want to talk about some indigenous stuff, uh, about you know being a native Canadian or American. And so they allowed her to do that, and she you know, would talk about that sort of stuff. She was also, she, on one episode, she was breastfeeding her son, which is the, they think it's the first instance of breastfeeding on television, which is pretty great. And so, in 1969, she released this record called Illuminations on Vanguard. And it is a very different than anything else she's ever released. It is more experimental. She and her producer, Maynard Solomon, used electronic synthesizers to create this crazy sound that went along with her folk music. It was also the first quadraphonic vocal record ever made. She uses a Buchla synthesizer, like we've mentioned a lot, and she would run her voice through that and integrate it into the song. And so what came out was this strange kind of dark folk record that would fit real easily into like freak folk that, you know, was popular, you know, a couple decades ago or even gothic music because it's just this weird, dark sonic soundscape. The song I played is an interpretation of a poem uh, by Leonard Cohen that was in his novel, Beautiful Losers. And so basically she just took the book, put it up on a stand, and more or less kind of just sang the lyrics as they came to her. And then they processed some of the vocals using the synthesizer. And it's just a really pretty song, but it has a lot of those cool electronic elements. So... I would definitely recommend checking out Illuminations if you haven't. It is one of those phenomenal records that's hard to describe. It's pretty, it's innovative, and it's totally unique. There's nothing that sounds quite like it. And that Maynard Solomon, you mentioned that this is on Vanguard Records and that he produced it. He founded Vanguard Records. Oh, did he? Yeah. It was cool that he kind of let her branch out from what she'd mostly done, which is a very successful songwriter. And she would kind of go back to more uh, folk stuff, and she won an Oscar for, oh, what's that song from An Officer and a Gentleman? 
It's like we've only just begun or something like that. Um, so she was a real successful artist. She got blacklisted for talking about indigenous rights. And she pretty much equates that with her career going down as far as radio stations stopped playing her songs. And, you know, she had a hard time kind of breaking through. And there's, you know, plenty of evidence that that's true. She saw a letter that Richard Nixon had written praising radio stations for basically not playing her music because she was too controversial and political. Really, really cool person. And Illuminations is just a great record. Definitely check it out. The only album I have by her is the one immediately after that. Uh Uh-huh. It's not good. All right, you ready for some trivia wrap-up? Yeah, let's finish it up. Okay. As you remember, I uh, took six songs by female artists, and I put them through the robot filter and gave little clues. So I'm going to play those again, and then we'll see how you did, Joe. Not well. So here we go. Track one. It's a country song from 1974. This robot is afraid of her man machine running away with the fembot with flaming amber decals. Track two. It's an R.B. and Soul from 1962. Fearing preemptive termination... This robot's moral malfunctioning has led to an extreme fear of retribution from the great programmer in the sky. Track 3. Let's call it Proto-Punk 1975. Her name is Seventh Letter. 11th letter, 15th letter, 18th letter, 9th, 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 9th letter, 1st letter, 7, 11, 15, 18, 9, 1. Check 4. Baroque Pop, 1967. In Germany, the Fembot Fatale vocal oscillations are stylish in spring, summer, autumn, and winter. Track 5, Neo Soul 2006. It will take precisely 0.2739 of a solar year, or 3.3 repeating months, of full rotations of the sun, to fully experience a Roboman's heart. Last track, track six, Indie 1993. You might anticipate that this robot has been recycled, but she's still attached to your chassis, licking your lower limb extremity. Track 
Okay. You got any of them? All right. I'm going to try. I think number one is Dolly Parton with Jolene. You got it. That's right. Number two, I have no idea at all. Seems like some kind of God is watching me. I don't know what song this is. Okay. It's tough. It is Nina Simone with Sinner Man. Oh, okay. Okay. I had a hard time picking out the songs. I, the clues, thankfully, were, were very helpful. It, it was hard for me to judge because when I was playing it, I already knew the song, so I could listen for those patterns. Mm-hmm. But I I think I, I made it maybe too hard. But uh, Other people might be doing really well. Yep. Um, I And I got number one. Number three, I believe, is Patti Smith with Gloria. Very good. You did. You got it. Track four, I think, is Nico with seasons fairest of the seasons very good yeah that's great also clue based uh number five i think is going to be sharon jones but i don't know the song it is sharon jones and it is 100 days 100 nights okay i got that because it was neo soul in as the clue and i know you're a big fan yep i am track six is really for me i think mostly uh, this is because of the clue. I got this. I think it's PJ Harvey with legs. It's PJ Harvey with rid of me. Oh, rid of. Oh, dang it. Okay. But legs, legs could apply too. He actually did pretty good. He got four out of six of them. On my first run through there at the beginning, I thought number six was she wore an itsy bitsy t- teeny weeny yellow polka dot <laughs> bikini. But then I forgot that that's not. A song that is sung by a woman. It's it's about ogling women. Yes. Tried not to uh, go down that direction for this episode. Maybe next time. All right. Good job on the trivia. Hopefully everybody out there did well or maybe got a few or it's okay if you didn't. Nobody really is keeping score. Want to say, give a shout out to a couple people. The first one is Johan. And Johan reached out after he listened to the cult Uh, episodes he is from sweden and he collects a bunch of like cult and commune records from sweden and he's he kind of recommended one for us i've listened to a few tracks a band that's a Hare krishna band called rasa they're really cool so i appreciate him reaching out and saying hi and the recommendation and everybody out there should if you're into that sort of stuff johan says check out rasa and we fully agree and we also want to give out I give a shout out to Micah, who we talked about his show, Micah and the Music of Mind Control on WFMU, uh, which we took a lot of inspiration from when we were doing our cult episodes. And he reached out to say he enjoyed the shows. And we've been talking to him, and hopefully you're going to do something with him sometime soon. So thanks for reaching out, Micah, and thanks for all your help with, with those shows. And as always, we want to thank... Pantheon Podcast, which is our podcast network. They are an amazing network full of podcasts just about music. There are probably almost three dozen, if not more by now. It's really great. If you're looking for a podcast about any kind of music, really, even if it's not about monstrous, futuristic, electronic music, they have something. They have uh, podcasts about the history of music. They have podcasts about songs, albums. Some of them are incredibly in-depth where they break down each song on an album. They have a, There is a podcast about Bob Dylan, which is amazing, especially right now when he is still releasing better albums than anyone else. 
they cover everything with music. You can always find something that you're going to like if you go head on over there. We appreciate that they're letting us ride the coattails of all these other podcasts. And we have social media. We are on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle on both of those is Highway Hi-Fi Pod. You can search for us and find us on Facebook, or you can email us, Podcast at gmail.com. I don't know. It's a ton of fun for Joe and I when we, we get to interact with people from all around the world who we would have never met who are listening to the show and have similar interests. And yeah, it's just great. So we appreciate anybody who takes the time to reach out and we appreciate anybody who takes the time to listen. If we could ask one more thing, if you have a minute to leave a review on iTunes, apparently that helps with other people finding us. So if you uh, could take a minute to review us, that would be fantastic. The other thing we always want to push is making sure that we always say, please, if you can, if you're able, if you have the ability Buy some records, buy from a local record store, from a label or from an artist or or maybe watch an online show. You know, just, just make sure that we're trying to support the artists who, who make life worth living. Do we miss anything? That's it. That's it. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening, and we'll see you next time. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.